Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Before we start, we'd like to warn listeners that today's episode of Women on the Line might not be suitable for all listeners. Some of the content we'll be discussing include descriptions of family violence, miscarriage, grief, trauma and mental health. If any of these themes are triggering for you, please come back next week. If anything we've discussed so far is upsetting, please call Lifeline on 131114 or visit Lifeline on lifeline.org.au. Lifeline is a 24-hour hotline. You can also call WIRE Women's Information on 1300 134 130. That's 1300 134 130. WIRE's phone service is available 9am to 5pm Monday to Friday. When he was abusing me for years, I took responsibility for his behaviour because I thought it was my job to manage his PTSD and I genuinely believed that it was his PTSD that was causing him to abuse me. That was the loop I was in and because I felt sorry for him. I'd see him go to a horrible job where there was a dead child. He would come home, he was traumatised. He'd talk about that incident, all the other incidents he'd been to where there were dead children. Um, And then he would start drinking and then he would start abusing me. That's Jay. We'll hear more from this remarkable woman later in the show. Jay is a phenomenal woman. After years of violence at the hands of her ex-husband, she decided enough was enough and took action. Jay reported her story to police and warned them about her plans to flee her partner. She expected privacy and to be believed and supported, but none of that happened. Instead, her escape plan was shared with her husband and her experience of violence was brushed away. Today's show falls on International Women's Day, and to keep with the theme of women in leadership, we reached out to Jay, a tough-as-nails woman fighting for a safer world. In the first half of our conversation, Jay shares her story of family violence at the hands of a partner who worked in one of Australia's most powerful institutions, Victoria Police. We begin the show with Jay recounting her journey and her attempts to hold her abuser accountable. I am a survivor, victim survivor of the police perpetrated family violence. My ex was a 20 year veteran of Victoria Police and he was charged with 70 serious family violence offences. Um, he was convicted in 2020 and appealed um, and was convicted again of six consolidated charges. So they sort of made them representative charges that included bashing me unconscious in front of my son, um, strangling me unconscious and causing a miscarriage, um, a lot of assaults on me assaults on one of my kids and making threats to kill and hunt down one of my children, threats with a firearm, persistent breaches of an FAO. I could go on, but he was a bad guy. So that's my background. And when I went through this, um, I'm also a lawyer. I realised that the system was very broken and the system was very different. The investigation system for police wives is very different to the investigation system for anybody else whose perpetrator is not a police officer. And this shocked me that it was a different system and it was a corrupt system 
that stepped towards supporting the perpetrator and discrediting the victim. So I know if you want to change something, you have to get evidence. So I started FOIing. I started speaking to other victims, locating other victims. Other victims started locating me. Um, and that's how this campaign began. And it actually began in a refuge in Canberra when I was speaking to another New South Wales police wife who was in the same circumstances as me. And it snowballed from there and now become a national campaign for change um, involving the media, politicians, and a lot of evidence that we've amassed, plus a research project that we're doing to capture the survivor voices to use to lobby police forces to change because they've been very resistant to change. And you've been around in the media for a while now speaking out about this issue. How has the response been so far? Um, the public response has been supportive. It has resulted in a bit of movement within Victoria Police um, now because of the amount of pressure that I've put on and the amount of evidence that I've gotten put forward to politicians. But it hasn't been the level of change we'd hoped for, but we always knew we we're going to have to play the long game with this. It's going to be a long push for many, many years and I'm prepared for that and so are the other victims because we don't want other women to go through what we've been through. But we've also, we also cop a lot of abuse and I knew that as soon as I went public that I cop a lot of abuse. That's that's the risk you take when, as a woman, you speak out on stuff like this. Mm. And I mean, domestic violence and family violence has been on the agenda for such a long time. And one of the first things they tell you when you experience domestic violence or family violence is that you should report to police straight away, as if that's a very straightforward process. What's your <laughs> thoughts on that? I think the first thing is there's this misconception that going to the police makes you safer. It doesn't. It can actually make you a lot more unsafe. And if you're a police wife, it definitely does because they treat it like an officer down situation and they go protect their mate. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. Um, and, you know, I, I think with the current debate about criminalising coercive control, and I won't go down into that burrow, I think there's this assumption that if you change the law and you issue pieces of paper, that it will stop guys killing their wives, and it won't. It definitely won't. And when I went to the police, and they finally started investigating, my ex's behaviour got considerably worse, considerably more dangerous, considerably more life-threatening. And we need to change the system to support women because if you want to change the law and start going down legal options, you need to make sure you've got support for them. And you also need to recognise that for some women, the law's just not an option and it's not going to help them, it's not going to save them, and neither are police. And when you reported what was happening to you to the police, so, you know, it's a situation where police were investigating police essentially yeah what do you think about that i think i think you can do it but you need to have controls in place and the problem with victoria police is they didn't so when i came forward my ex's station buddies guys who know him really well guys who knew me from social functions were the ones who came out and of course they're like they're a loved up couple he's a good guy she's making it up she must be trying to take the house that that was the assumption there and everyone was focused on his welfare his mental health no one really cared about us and then when it got the way this investigation system works in victoria for police wives is very different so instead of going to a family violence unit where they've got specially trained detectives, and victoria police has done well in trying to improve that system in the family violence command we don't go through Family Violence Command, we go through Professional Standards Command. And a lot of women, like me, our files get sent to a uniformed guy in the same division as our perpetrator. And they didn't deal with issues of conflict of interest and they prioritise managing his welfare and his interests over my safety. So that's really, really problematic. That's going to result in women withdrawing complaints or not making them in the first place. And frankly, the only reason why... I got all the way through and I was the first woman in five years to secure a conviction against a Victoria Police 
um, member for family violence and that says a lot. The only reason I got that far was A, I'm a lawyer, I know the system, and B, I had an amazing employer who said I could work from Canberra. And so I left the state. That's how I could do it. And so many women, you don't have an, I had this middle-aged male boss who's like, this is crap, I'm calling this out. I'm calling this out for the boys. Like this is, I don't, I don't want men to be like this. So he backed me. And guys like that should be given awards. Like that's what you should do. But most people don't have a boss like that or don't have a, a career that's flexible enough that you can work remotely. And I've noticed that PTSD is sometimes cited as a contributing factor of police domestic violence. You know, the police officers have gone yeah. through a lot and they sort of take it out on their partners. I wonder, is there a more, is there a better conversation that can be had about the effects of PTSD and how the links between that and the violence that they enact? Definitely. And I have to put my hand up here and because I'm, I think if you've seen my media work before, I'm actually very blunt about how I thought at the time. So when he was abusing me for years, I took responsibility for his behaviour because I thought it was my job to manage his PTSD. And I genuinely believed that it was his PTSD that was causing him to abuse me. That was the loop I was in because I felt sorry for him. I'd see him go to horrible job where there was a dead child he would come home he was traumatized he'd talk about that instant all the other instances he'd been to where there were dead children um and then he would start drinking and then he would start abusing me so i would make that link what i failed to see until a long time down the track was if ptsd was causing him to hit me and to do all the other things horrific things he did to me why wasn't he acting up at work and the, the most crystalline example of that for me was one of the incidents has had a fair bit of press, press when he bashed my head into a letterbox and knocked me unconscious in front of my child. Um, he then went to work. So he was he completely lost it with me. He punched me in the face. He did all of that. But then he went to work at Sunbury Police Station and none of his colleagues noticed anything different about him. Mm. And one of the reasons his colleagues didn't believe the allegations was because they'd never seen that side of him at work. So if you have PTSD and PTSD is causing your offending, it's not something you can switch on and off. And that you, if you speak to most battered police wives, they will say it's his PTSD that's causing it or I thought it was his PTSD that's causing it. But that's the test. Because some of them, I think there is a link between the severity of the violence and mental health. But in those men, and I've spoken to some of those wives, they've got problems with professional standards command. They've got problems with their colleagues. They've um, acted up with the public and they behave consistently at home to the way they behave outside of home. And in that case, I think there, there is a link. But for most of us, there's not. It gets used as an excuse. And unfortunately, the courts accept it as an excuse too. Even in cases like mine, on appeal, the judge said, oh, I'm satisfied that PTSD caused the offending. But if that were the case, how could he go to work and act normal? How do you think police officers who use their partners at home as a punching bag can do effective policing? Are they able to do effective policing? Are they able to keep of some sort of unbiased view when it comes to policing communities? I don't think so, and I don't think so on two fronts. So the first is, if you are a domestic abuser at home, we know what causes domestic violence generally is toxic masculinity. It's, it's views about seeing women as a chattel um, who should do what you say. So if you've got those kind of attitudes, you've got to wonder how you're going to handle a domestic violence caller. And I know with my ex, when he went to work after bashing me that time, he was dealing with family violence fallouts. And you've got to wonder how he dealt with those. Is he siding with the perpetrator and thinking, gee, she's brought this on, she must be a rubbish wife? Or is he looking at the victim and what's actually happened? Because Victoria Police's family violence education program is actually pretty good. So they've got the awareness. But if you've got those toxic views, 
you're the ones who are going to, to stuff it up or you're getting influenced by a man with toxic views who's the senior constable or the sergeant. And so you're not issuing the family violence safety notices. You're not taking it seriously. That's the impact it has on society. And so that's why I'm quite passionate about police perpetrated family violence doesn't just affect us victims. It affects all victims because you could get this guy. Would you want someone like my ex turning up to your family violence call out? Now, the second element for me is broader. In the research work that we're doing, one of the questions that we ask women, we ask them about whether they have toxic views, um, that their husbands had toxic, toxic views about women. And we ask, you know, did you have an issue? Did he have an issue when the female assistant commissioner got promoted? Did you know, they say it was just because she was a woman? All of that sort of stuff. There's a whole lot of questions we ask in there to tease that out. But we also ask about racist views. Mm. And I ask specifically the people in our area, which has a, a big um, African... Australian population, what terms they use to describe the African-Australian population. Mm. You've, I've found a really, really strong link between racist views mm. and those who are domestic violence offenders. And that's reflected in the US data too. There's a lot of research in the US on that. So police officers who commit family violence at home are much more likely to over-police minority communities and be racist and be sexist and prejudiced towards domestic violence victims. So you don't want these guys in the force. It impacts everybody, it impacts the whole of society keeping these guys in the force. And I would say it impacts adversely police forces because it affects your reputation. You, if you want to build bridges with minority communities, you don't want these guys going out in the van. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Women on the Line. On today's special International Women's Day show, we're listening to Jay, a victim survivor of police-perpetrated domestic violence, about her campaign to hold Victoria Police accountable. In the second half of our conversation, Jay discusses structural reforms, alternatives to policing, and what keeps her going. And I suppose this is a, this is a big question, but what kind of structural changes would you like to see in the police force victoria specifically but also maybe even broader um the first change i would like to see and it's, it's something that i've said directly to victoria police is education's great training's great i'd like to see you have a victim informed training program for officer involved domestic violence for professional standards command and i'm happy to contribute to that and i know other victims will be too um, but training only gets you so far. Training doesn't change culture. Accountability changes culture. So you need to get rid of these guys. So Victoria Police can start disciplining these people, but they're also hamstrung. And I do feel sorry there are some actually really quite good eggs in Professional Standards Command who don't want these guys in the force. But it's really hard for them to get rid of them because of the Police Act. It's very difficult to sack and discipline a police officer. And also because of the Police Association Victoria, which is like the police union in the other states, they make it really hard to discipline these guys. So there's change there that needs to happen, sort of legislative change, the Police Act needs to be amended. In terms of the structural change, there's nothing in the Police Act that prevents these guys from being disciplined as soon as charges are authorised. But at the moment what happens is disciplinary proceedings do not start until someone's convicted. So my ex had been convicted, he could still access a gun, he was still a police officer. We were crapping ourselves because he'd been put on appeal bail, thinking he's going to come down and, sh and hunt us down. We just fled. And then they decided to suspend him. And it's like, this is crazy. And when I would tell people, 
I know when I was telling an ABC journalist, she was like, what? And it's like, I'll show you the text messages. I can prove how the process happens. Mm. That needs to change. That's just a really easy fix, structural change, because there's nothing preventing them from starting the discipline process as soon as charges are authorised or early. You can actually start it at the intervention order stage. I mean, there are pros and cons there about whether you want to do it then or not. But I think definitely once charges are authorised, they should be suspended. And they're at higher risk then too, because their career is potentially on the line, mm. unlike that don't tend to get disciplined. But you need to make the woman safe. So that's the first change I'd like to see. The second change I'd like to see is we're just asking for equality as family violence victims, not just in Victoria, but in New South Wales and Queensland too. Because the system of investigation for us, as I said before, is different. We get dealt with by um, professional standards, by command, it gets sent out to a uniformed guy, he has to do it on top of his day job. It's not a priority. He thinks it's a rubbish family violence case. She's probably fitting him up. So you, you have an investigator who's not up to it, doesn't have time. We just want to be dealt with the same as other victims are. They go to family violence command. They get someone who's trained, specialised, does it as a priority so that this get, doesn't drag on for a year the way mine did. My case came to police attention a full year before charges were finally authorised. And all that time we were in and out of refuges and terrified and then for the whole year it was in court he could still access a police gun and was still a cop and hadn't been disciplined so that needs to change and they need and one thing they have done as a result of my lobbying is that they do now have a conflict of interest check so the guy who's dealing with your ex can't be in the same division anymore and can't know him now you would have thought that's a pretty obvious Basic, thing yeah but apparently i mean the change isn't deployed yet but it is getting deployed as a result of my case and um, involvement of a regulator in it and the amount of just grit I've put into it. But that's something that it should have been fixed years ago and it does need to be fixed in other jurisdictions. So the structural changes I'm asking for are not expensive. The problem is that you have to have the political will and there's a lot of politics involved with dealing with police union too. Um, I want to talk about alternatives to policing to support survivors of family violence or victims of family violence. What do you think we could do instead of relying on police? Um, I would like to see a lot more funding for the refuge sector and for um, the domestic violence support services. Now, one issue that I've had in dealing with that sector is they don't understand that we, we face much higher risks as domestic violence victims of police officers. And so going to police is not an option for a lot of us because, I mean, it happened in my case and it's, you know, got a bit of publicity. My safety and escape plan got leaked. Um, the, my statements got leaked. Lots of information got leaked back to my ex. And when I complained about it, they said, oh, but that had to get leaked back to his, um, his colleagues on member welfare grounds so that they could manage him. They needed to know what you were doing and what you're up to so they could look after him. Now, when you hear stuff like that, would you want to report to the police? No. So I think what we have to do is find ways of keeping women safe that don't involve police. And one of those is making sure that we have a way to help them set up their lives interstate. We have a way to help them be somewhere safe and get strong enough. Because I think one thing people don't understand is that when you first go to the police about family violence, you don't go in a strong way. And quite often you don't, even, you don't want to be the bad guy because you're scared of him. So you want police to take out the intervention order. You don't want it to be you. You don't want to be seen to be the one who's snitching because you know you're going to cop it. And it takes a long time of being away from him until you feel strong enough to go, no, that's BS behaviour and you can't treat me like that anymore where you're strong enough to push back hard. We need to find a safe, a safe space for women where they can get that strength, where you can have a job, um, you can live safely away from your ex. And we don't have that at the moment, the way the refuges are set up. And I was lucky in that 
um, I'm from an ethnic community that was quite supportive of me. My ex-partner is not from that ethnic community, so they hid me within the community. And I could keep, like I said before, I could keep working and I was in and out of refuges, but that helped me a lot. But if you're not from a really strong ethnic community that supports you, it's really difficult. And I'd like to see the refuge network changed and the support network changed. Because the problem is you go to a refuge, you're not allowed to work generally. I had to get special permission from the refuge in Canberra to continue to work. And if I'd been in Victoria, I wasn't allowed to. And then you lose your job. So you, you need, we need to keep women being able to earn money whilst they're in a refuge. That's a big stumbling block. Mm, mm. I understand what, why you don't want them to work because they could be tracked by their ex, but there has to be a way to do it. Absolutely. And talking about this is obviously very heavy and I imagine re-traumatising and yet you're here campaigning loudly. Um, what keeps you going? Um, I have met so many victims in this interview project who, I mean, there's two answers. There's these other victims and they are so traumatised and when we um, speak, we both end up crying. Um, they've been through so much trauma, they've copped so much injustice and they can't speak and they always start the conversation and end the conversation the same of thank you for speaking up, please don't stop speaking up because you speak for us. So I do it for them because I know that I have a voice that is heard and they can't get heard and there's some of them there's you know, they can't speak because of the family court. They can't speak due to other reasons. I, I can. I don't have a family court order preventing me from speaking. So that's why I do it. The other reason I do it, and it's much more confronting, is the strangulation event that resulted in the miscarriage. I lost bodily function control. And I was told when I was checked over in hospital that I'm lucky to be alive. That if you void like that, most women die and there's a minority who don't and you end up with either PTSD or a stroke or a brain injury. I'm lucky I, I just have PTSD. So whilst it's very difficult for me to speak, I feel that I have to because I got a chance at life and that was just random, absolutely random. And I'm going to take that chance and use it to argue for other women because I don't want an, a woman getting killed by a police officer in these circumstances. So I've had a lot of therapy to help me emotionally disengage when I'm doing interviews like this um, so that I don't re-traumatise myself too much. And that's been a deliberate tactic because I know to speak, I have to be able to speak safely um, for myself and then advocate well for others. Yeah. And how do survivors get in contact with you if they want to share their stories or they want to join your work? Um, I've got an email, which is policedv at protonmail.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter and I've got a pretty boring Twitter handle, which is, you know, police DV victim survivor advocate Australia. Um, so people can DM me there, but I always say to people, don't follow me on Twitter, just DM me. Um, Cause if you follow me, your perpetrator can find you cause I'm in plain sight. Um, but anyone who wants to participate in the research project can contact me there. We do do some referrals to CLCs where we can um, for people who are currently going through the system, but, there's sort of very limited support we can do, but those who want to share their stories for the project, because I think for a lot of women, you know, you've, you've been denied justice by the police. Um, you've been denied justice by the courts or you haven't been able to report at all. But if you want your voice to be heard in reforms and, and to get some small positive thing out of a horrific circumstance and contribute to this, like we're, we're happy to, to hear your voice um, in a way that feels best for you. So there's some who've contacted me saying, I want to be in your project. 
but not for another six months because I'm not strong enough. And said, that's fine. And some want me to just keep in touch with them and let them know what we're doing so that they feel part of the project and I'm happy to go back to them. What an incredible story of resilience and courage. Thank you, Jay, for entrusting your story and vision with us. Today's episode was heavy, so we understand if you need to take a minute to collect your thoughts. It was heavy for us too. But if you need it, there is help available. You can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone service on 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114. And you can also try Wire Women's Information on 1300 134 130 between 9am and 5pm Monday to Friday. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We leave you today with the vibrant sounds of Sampa the Great, Feet Mwanje, with their powerful ode to self-love called Inner Voice. See you next time. Lost my vibe. I'ma bring it back cause I got my tribe. Could've settled down, but I'm down and I'm living. Could've stayed low like calm, but the villain. But I got the keys and the keys to me, so I'm free. Let it be now, all is forgiven. This how I lean now, this how I rock. This way it be when your soul ain't locked. This how it be when you take control. Look into the future and it's bathed in gold. I will never lose myself, wish me. All my happiness and energy. Stuck up in the clouds and lifted up. I'ma let it go, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Who are you? Sampa T-E-M-B-O F-R-E-E-Y-N-J-O Contemplating Y-O-Y-O Concentrating why aren't you? I'm observing my own ghost And I'm singing my own notes And I'm singing my own